welcome to What About Us, a podcast that discusses how policies affect rural Tennesseans. My name is Sandy Rice, and I am the host. Please note that What About Us is now part of the Tennessee Holler podcast network, but you can still listen to wherever you usually download uh, this and your other podcasts. Please go to tnholler.com, sign up, support, and see all the other great podcasts and also the newsletter. Today, my guest is Andrea Hatcher. Welcome, Dr. Hatcher. Thank you, Sandy. Now, you are the professor and chair of the Department of Politics and director of the pre-law program at the University of the South. Now, that's a lot of stuff to do. That keeps you busy. It keeps me very busy. (laughs) Thank you for taking the time from your teaching schedule to be with us today. Thank you for the invitation. bet. We are going to talk about the Electoral College. You know it's election season when we start hearing about, when we start hearing those words. So how does the Electoral College work? Well, Sandy, it's complicated. It Uh, is. (laughs) The the Constitution is concerned. The uh, popular election every uh, 4th November is really only the the first step in a complex procedure that uh, we hope culminates in the, the formal declaration of a winner a full two months later. Um, In fact, under the Constitution, the November election is not even for the presidential candidates themselves, but for the electors who subsequently choose a president. Now, there are 538 electors corresponding to the number of representatives in the House and uh, 100 senators in the U.S. Senate, and then there are a few more to account for the, the District of Columbia. Oh, okay. And these electors uh, are individuals usually uh, nominated uh, to be an elector on the basis of their long service to the party or uh, even, quite frankly, because of their financial donations to a party uh, or candidate. And so when we show up to vote uh, for president every November, we usually see the names of the party's presidential candidates printed uh, in large type on the ballot and preceded in much smaller type by the words presidential elections for. Um, And sometimes voters don't even realize that they're actually voting for presidential electors rather than directly for the president and vice president. And the constitution says that the electors should meet in their respective states to vote by ballot for the president and the vice president. So by statute, that's now the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December. And on that day, the electors meet in their states at noon and they vote. They ballot separately for the president and the vice president as required by the constitution. And then the electors send a list of their voters by registered mail to the president of the Senate in Washington. And then the culmination. On January 6th, the votes are counted in a joint session in the House chamber with the vice president presiding. And at this point, the counting and certification of electoral votes is really an entirely ceremonial act. So that, in brief, is an overview of how the Electoral College works. So how does the, well, how how did this all come about? Can we go back to the history and the founding fathers? What were their, you know, thoughts in in doing this and not just doing a hands-up, eyes-closed vote in the first place? 
Absolutely. Um, well, the how to get a, a president or how to get a chief executive was among the most contentious issues argued at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, one group felt that the state should have a hand in the process. Another group urged direct election by the people. Uh, and there were any number of proposals, including this or election by state governors or electors chosen by state legislatures. Um, and this debate was complicated by the discussion of a couple of other variables like uh, length of tenure and eligibility for reelection. And so what did our uh, wise founding fathers do? Uh, they were ultimately bureaucrats at heart and they created a committee, the Brerley Committee on Postponed Matters. And so this committee uh, met and came up with the compromise that we now know is the Electoral College. Um, and the delegates at the convention readily accepted it because, let me remind you and your listeners, uh, they were all working politicians. Our founding fathers were hardly the political theorist that uh, myth and legend has led us to believe. They were fundamentally politicians at heart and they needed something to get through the process. What they liked about this compromise, the Electoral College, was that everybody got a piece of, of the cake. Each delegate could leave the convention, go back to his state, argue to his constituents that their interest had really won the day. So I think about it. In this newly created Electoral College, uh, the state legislatures had the right to determine the mode of selection of the electors. Secondly, the small states received a bonus in the Electoral College in the form of a guaranteed minimum of three votes, uh, while the big states got acceptance uh, of the principle of proportional power. Um, and then there was a role for the people to directly choose the electors if the, the state legislatures agreed. And then, of course, if no candidate receives a majority in the Electoral College, what happens? Uh, the House gets a say uh, in voting. So in other words, this compromise had something for everyone, for state legislatures, for small states, large states, um, uh, Congress. And so this compromise uh, seemed almost too good to be true. When it came out, the, um, uh, the delegates at the convention uh, snapped it up with little debate or controversy. Um, the thing about it is no one seemed to think very well of the Electoral College at the time. It just was what came about. It was the compromise that they needed to accept to go forward. Um, and so, you know, just to dispel one myth, uh, it doesn't appear that the framers, in their wisdom, endowed us with a college of cardinals. Uh, the Electoral College wasn't meant to be a, a group of philosopher kings or even some sort of protection against elitist distrust of the masses. Uh, one scholar, I like his quotation describing it. He says, it's merely a jerry-rigged improvisation, which has subsequently been endowed with high theoretical content. <laughs> In fact, one would be tempted to suggest that the framers would be startled to find the college still in operation, right. and perhaps dismayed at their descendants' lack of judgment or inventiveness. Well, and I think um, they'd never done this before. They exactly they didn't have they they hadn't elected a president. They really didn't know what a president should be. Uh, just not a king. Right. And in right. fact, they assumed 
uh, everybody sort of knew that George Washington would be the first president. And so uh, uh, they assumed that after Washington's service as president, then in fact, there would uh, uh, be such division in the country uh, that no candidate would get a majority and the vote would consistently be put into the House for ultimate decision. See, our framers didn't envision political parties that now structure our voting today, particularly having a two-party system uh, that gives us this majoritarian uh, vote that often constrains our choices. Right, and they also, um, interestingly enough, didn't trust well, I don't know if trust would be the right word, but they were skeptical that the people could elect a president. If we just left, if they just left it up, they didn't trust them to be maybe knowledgeable enough. Could you say that? I think for some, uh, that was certainly the case. I think that the reality was practical considerations. Um, we were a very large nation at the time, Even and at that time. We didn't have the the internet uh, communication and transportation was sparse and difficult. And so when you think about what a presidential campaign looks like now uh, with media and the outreach by candidates, that simply was impossible in the large nation of the early days of the Republic. And so uh, the framers really didn't think that direct election of a president could be possible because of the difficulties of candidates voting nationwide. Keep in mind, the president was our only nationally elected position. Um, members of Congress compete and run uh, in small uh, defined districts. And so for this national office, it would just be simply impossible for candidates to run a national election. And in this sense, an electoral college served to um, localize, if you will, part of the presidential vote. Mm -hmm. And they were very fearful of corruption. Indeed. Um, thinking that the, the public could be easily swayed by misinformation. Yes, and perhaps even uh, that the electors would as well. And so uh, there has been a uh, debate. The Constitution is silent on this issue, whether the electors are bound or not. Mm -hmm. And just this past term, the Supreme Court has issued a ruling uh, that in fact, uh, state laws that somehow punish or remove electors who go rogue, um, that those are in fact constitutional. Okay, so that if an elector was kind of going against the majority of the state, but wanted to go rogue, in other words, just do what he wanted to do, he or she, that's not that's not possible. Exactly. And, and getting back to your point about corruption, you can imagine should an electoral college majority rest on a margin of only one or two votes, then we might well witness faithless electors mm -hmm. uh, who might be easily targeted for uh, bribery, for example, or otherwise want to uh, uh, change their vote in order to gain personal fame or draw attention to some favorite cause or issue. Right. This was one of the concerns that uh, the justices wrote about in their opinion in this case that was handed down just a couple of months ago. Okay. Even, though, even though it hadn't happened very often, is I understand. Correct. No, it's been rare and uh, certainly not uh, had any real consequence for the overall outcome. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that will send everybody back to their children's history books. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. I told you it was complicated. And certainly with, worth a rewind to listen to that again um, for the listeners as well as myself. So we hear about the elect electoral college all the time, and um, there's reason for that. What's the what's the general debate surrounding the electoral college? Right. So one reason I like the quotation that I just read to your listeners uh, from that scholar, John Roche, is that it really gets at the prevailing public perception, I think, that the framers had something important in mind in giving us the Electoral College, and therefore it's almost sacrosanct and can't be or shouldn't be changed or tampered with. And so, uh, uh, but what the uh, uh, John Roche is saying is that we have projected um, theoretical content onto a framework that was jerry-rigged to begin with. So typically now we tend to hear advocates argue that allocating electoral votes by states and having states cast their votes as units ensures that presidential candidates will be attentive to and protective of state-based interests, especially the interest of states with small population, um, that the Electoral College is somehow uh, an essential bulwark of federalism. Uh, we tend to think that um, uh, one of its principal advantages is that the Electoral College forces candidates to pay attention to small states that otherwise would be lost in a national electorate, that it, it leads candidates to build a, a national coalition, um, that it creates really a nation and eliminates what's been called flyover country. Um, but interestingly enough, there have been studies done to show that, that that argument in favor of the Electoral College exists more by myth rather than by evidence, just to give your listeners some data. Um, uh, looking at a log of campaign events by the Republican and Democratic presidential and vice presidential nominees in 2016. Uh, from the time of the conventions, when we were first given uh, the two candidates, the two nominees to vote for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Uh, so looking at the time of the convention to the election day, presidential candidates did not visit 25 states at all. Tennessee was among them. So for your listeners who are thinking that uh, the Electoral College somehow protects uh, rural Tennessee by forcing candidates to pay attention to a region that otherwise would be forgotten, well, I hate to say that it's in fact because of the Electoral College that rural Tennessee is forgotten by the presidential candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, 12 states in the U.S. had double-digit candidate uh, uh, visits by the candidates. Uh, Ohio was visited 48 times. Pennsylvania, 54. Virginia, 55. Tennessee, none. Uh, so the candidates aren't fools. Um, they go where the Electoral College makes them go. And where does the Electoral College make them go? Not to small states, not to otherwise ignored regions, not to what's been called flyover country. Uh, but the Electoral College makes candidates go to the competitive states. Um, and so candidates, the reality is candidates ignore most small states. In fact, they ignore uh, more than half the country. Right. And, and of course, Iowa, because of the caucus, you know, that might be the only rural region that candidates visit because they go to the state fair. But 
uh, and and if you talk to somebody that lives in Iowa, they've they've met all the candidates. Exactly, and that happens because of the importance of Iowa in the primary, because Iowa is the first uh, caucus state. So you could also say these states that they visit, like Pennsylvania, so many times, do they go to rural areas, do you think, or are they pretty much in the cities, highly populated urban areas? Well, you know, it does depend on which party you're talking to and which party is making the visit. So once in these battleground states, the candidates will go to the parts of the states, the regions of the state, where they can most energize their base to turn out to vote. Um, and so, but, but fundamentally, it comes down to the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So candidates and their campaign consultants, they, they aren't fools. They're going to go where the numbers tell them to go. And so they will make appearances in places with a large number uh, of votes, uh, regardless of whether they are Democrat or, or Republican, where they can be efficient and maximize their turnout. Right. And probably with a large number of jobs, because that's always an important issue, jobs. Right. So big factories and things. So it's easy to see how rural um, areas would be ignored and therefore rural issues would be ignored. Correct. Correct. What are some other arguments against the Electoral College? So um, the problems of the Electoral College really can uh, uh, come down to this, that it is a distorted counting device. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because of the allocation of a constant two electoral votes equal to each state, regardless of size, that has the effect of overweighting small population states relative to large. But here's the irony. The winner-take-all allocation of the electoral college system, because after all, for uh, 48 states, the winner of the popular vote in the state, no matter how close, how narrow the margin is, gets all of the electoral college votes of that state. So that system uh, ensures that large states simply are worth more to candidates. So there is this paradox where there is both a small state and a large state bias in the electoral college. Let me just give you an example here uh, uh, using the states of California and Wyoming. California, very large state, has about 12% of the nation's population. Uh, It only has about 10% of the electoral college votes. So its worth in the electoral college is not equal to its share of the population. Compare that to Wyoming. Wyoming has 0.1% of the nation's population, but it has a minimum share of electoral votes that works out to be more than half a percent of the electoral college uh, vote. So proportionally speaking, this means that California is underrepresented by more than 15% in the electoral college. Wyoming, get this, Sandy, Wyoming is vastly overrepresented by 205 percent than what its population would suggest. So in other words, the Electoral College violates the fundamental principle of democracy that there's to be political equality, that my vote counts the same as your vote, counts the same as every other individual vote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. They go to Wyoming. 
because, no, I'm, I'm looking at my uh, data here in Wyoming, there were no visits to uh, Wyoming uh, in the last um, national campaign cycle after the, the convention when we had the nominees. No visits to Wyoming because of... They didn't have the, very many electoral votes. Right, and because it's not a battleground state. There are many at stake, and the voting uh, 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 predisposition of Wyoming is pretty much set, like Tennessee. It is predominantly Republican, and so the Republicans uh, know that they don't have to contest that state, and the Democrats for that matter. So that's another hindrance to uh, the value of the presidential vote in Tennessee. Um, being a, a solidly one-party state, it simply means that um, the Republicans, as happens to be the case in Wyoming and in Tennessee, can simply take the state's votes for granted and don't have to compete here. Okay, and don't have to be make themselves aware of the, the issues that exactly. and the and, and that's really been the focus of this podcast is to amplify the issues of rural te- rural Tennessee. So the big thing, though, is. Um, criticism of the Electoral College, uh, kind of stemming from these factors, is that we've had two presidents that uh, were elected by the college, but not the popular vote. And I think that's what brings this kind of pain of, wait a minute, the most popular should win. Correct? Exactly. And that too is a basic principle of, of democracy, right? That we, the people, should choose uh, who leads us. And if there is this um, vote counting system that was created in the 18th century, that that somehow is now a hindrance to the preferences of of Americans now. And since you brought up those historical precedents, Andy, let me just put that in perspective. Okay. Um, so in way back in uh, 1876, when uh, Tilden won the popular vote, Um, he won that by a margin of 250,000 votes, but he didn't win the presidency. Uh, Right, because we don't, because we didn't memorize his name. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You you well know there's been no President uh, Tilden. Um, uh, In 1888, let me give you this example. Uh, Grover Cleveland uh, won the popular vote by a margin of only 95 uh, thousand votes, even in 2000, uh, when uh, Bush beat Gore in the Electoral College, Gore won by only 540, the popular vote by only 540,000 votes out of more than 110 million uh, cast. Now, what happened in 2016? Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but Donald Trump won the Electoral College vote. Interestingly enough, that tends to be one of the uh, maybe least remarked items about the uh, 2016 election, that in fact, that was yet another time when the popular vote winner uh, was not elected president, that the Electoral College settled, um, gave us a president who did not win the popular vote. But listen to this, the vote margin in 2016 was three and a half million popular votes. So each time we have seen the the popular vote winner lose the presidency uh, to the electoral college vote winner, it's actually grown by lar- the disparity has grown by larger and larger numbers. So that now, again in 2016, 
you had a differential of three and a half million votes. I mean, maybe back in 1888, we could say, well, it was a small difference. It was only 95,000 votes. And maybe so. But when you're talking about a difference of three and a half million votes of people directly electing the president by three and a half million, uh, 3.5 million votes, and that individual is not winning the presidency, I think it does raise real questions uh, about democracy and what we want small d democratic outcomes in this country to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what is the movement towards a popular, is that possible? To, to elect a president by popular vote? Well, certainly it's possible. That would require a constitutional amendment to uh, do away with the Electoral College. There are some other efforts at reform uh, that various states and, and people have proposed. So, uh, for example, in Maine and Nebraska, there is something called the District Plan, uh, which would award one electoral vote to the candidate who wins in each congressional district within a state. And then the two additional electoral votes in each state would go to the candidate winning uh, the most votes in that that state um, totally. Um, So just to give you an idea, um, in 2016, uh, that would have had the effect of, of uh, giving uh, President Trump uh, even more votes uh, than he actually won in the Electoral College. Uh, and in 2008, that would have done the same for President Obama. Okay. So it doesn't always repair all of the faults that we've identified with the Electoral College, but it does seem plausible that that would have a more uh, proportional distribution of electoral college votes. And those two states are able to do that because it's in their state constitution? Right. So they have determined as states that that's what uh, they want to do, that, they, that that's how they want to allocate their electoral college votes. See, each state can decide how it will allocate its electoral college votes. Um, all that these two choose to do it in that winner-take-all system that I described earlier. Okay. Um, but Maine and Nebraska have the district plan. Now there is something else um, called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Uh, and so I think it has maybe 15 states have signed on to it that would pledge their electoral college votes to whichever candidate wins the national popular vote, regardless of how the candidates perform in their state. Um, but that compact, that scheme would only go into effect once enough states have joined to, to tip the election. Um, and so far that hasn't yet happened. Simply not enough states signing on to do that. I think I saw something that there are some, there are more states that are interested. Correct. Correct. So Tennessee is not one of them. Well, maybe that would be a good, uh, political action, uh, campaign for some of your listeners to get involved with and bring it to the attention of the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. What would be the problem with the popular vote? Is that, would that be open to um, fraud or abuse or any concerns like that, trying to count the votes of the entire population of the United States? 
well, certainly that is, is a criticism. And as much as we want uh, access to the ballot to be uh, free and accessible, uh, we also want it to be free from fraud. And we want the, the balloting to, to have integrity. Um, and so typically, um, uh, advocates for the Electoral College say that it uh, would prevent fraud that otherwise could come in with a, um, a, direct, a direct election. Um, however, I don't think that there's any more concern with fraud in the direct popular vote than there would be with the Electoral College. I, I've already given your listeners an example of how uh, fraud can work its way into the system by, for example, uh, faithless electors being right. mm-hmm. bribed or otherwise induced to uh, go rogue or vote a different way. Um, and so by direct election, it would happen if there were some concerns about uh, a recount, it would happen just the same way that we have uh, now. If there is a close election in any given state, uh, we recount the votes. And in fact, I mean, honestly, uh, Sandra, it may make uh, fraud widespread fraud less likely because think about what uh, an individual would have to do to swing the election in a nationwide direct popular vote. You would have to have a systemic scheme of fraud in all 50 of the states. Mm -hmm. Whereas in fact, now, if you wanted to enact a fraudulent scheme in voting, um, conceivably you could only have to disrupt the vote because of the electoral college, maybe in one or two of the key battleground states, say again, Ohio or Pennsylvania. So in some sense, I think a credible argument could be made that um, having a direct popular vote uh, nationwide makes fraud less likely because it's just harder to have a nationwide fraudulent scheme enacted. Right. We had said um, at, at the last podcast that I did that there's never been a time, a better time to get good information about candidates, and there's never been a better time to get misinformation about candidates and in, in our voting um, process. I think that's that's fair to say. I'm currently teaching a, a seminar on voting at the university this semester, mm-hmm. and I was just preparing a lecture about voter fraud and examining. Uh, some of the the evidence uh, related to that. And um, uh, it's true that the most common form of voter fraud now is not the old-fashioned ballot stuffing that may have occurred back in uh, certain points during our history of forging ballots. No, uh, the, the, the most direct way to engage in voter fraud now is for there to be misinformation campaigns mm-hmm. to lead people astray as they acquire uh, information that would otherwise help them uh, decide who and what to vote for. What do your uh, students, your college students, what what are some of the impressions they um, have today of, of voting and this misinformation and you know, I think that I am seeing in this upcoming election an enthusiasm and excitement for voting and political participation uh, that on levels that maybe we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And I am one to encourage voting. I tell them, I don't care who you vote to, vote for. I just care that you vote because I think that the act of voting itself is Um, more important than just choosing a person or a policy or an issue Mm -hmm. that 
just the act of us showing up to vote, or in this case, and in the middle of a pandemic of voting by mail, of casting our ballot is an individual recommitment to democracy and to strengthening our nation and to uh, participating in the governance of our country and to taking responsibility for owning the democracy right. uh, that our framers gave us. Do you think the issue of climate change makes them more involved? You know, I think that that may be one issue. I think there are any number of issues uh, that can uh, attract their attention and that these uh, young people maybe are not the single issue voters that uh, others would like to to categorize them. I think that they have um, many issues that are drawing them to participate and many issues that that link together. So, for example, where they many of them are now voting for the first time uh, or will be voting for the first time during uh, a pandemic. And so issues right. of health uh, are are forefront in their minds, as well as issues of, of jobs in the economy uh, that has now suffered greatly because we can't seem to get uh, the pandemic under control. So I think any number of issues are salient to, to students these days. Which should be for all of us, all ages. Absolutely. I always like to get the, the um, input of, of our young people. Um, I think they're overlooked, just like rural Tennesseans. Exactly. exactly. If you're a young person in rural Tennessee, <laughs> you're doubly ignored. <laughs> Dare I ask you about mail-in voting? Uh, certainly, you may ask me about mail-in voting. Are we voting. going to make it through that? <laughs> uh, you know, I hope so. I, I certainly hope so, uh, Sandy. Um, uh, there have been a handful of states who have uh, changed their voting uh, in the last decade or more to uh, all vote by mail. Oregon is one, and researchers have found there have been no uh, uh, instances, no increases in voter fraud. Um, mm -hmm. Instead, it serves to uh, increase voter turnout, which again, it shouldn't be a, a partisan issue. Um, parties should want to win on the strength of their argument not on how they can change or shape the rules uh, of the game to um, uh, promote or inhibit voting. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I hope that, that we can get this vote by mail, the, the, the problems with the postal system under control and, and have voting by mail be a, a good alternative for most voters again in this age of pandemic. Voting is essential to the health of our democracy. And we shouldn't have to risk our own health or our lives or the lives of those uh, vulnerable populations that we live with and care for to go out and vote. That's certainly not something our framers would have intended. No, no. And I think also, also automatic voter registration. It shouldn't be difficult to, um, to be registered. Absolutely, especially if uh, we have the selective service system, right? The draft that young people, uh, young males are um, uh, uh, enrolled in that. And so uh, why is voting any less important? I think that an automatic voter registration system uh, would be good for this country. And also it would help, again, uh, mitigate some uh, uh, potential for fraud. Because after all, if the process is, is automatic, then there are more rules and regulations that help us regulate that process and keep it under control. Right, right. 
Is there anything else that you would like to tell us about, Andrea, or? Sure. Um, you know, I always remind my students of the first three words of the Constitution, mm -hmm. we the people, mm -hmm. and that that simple phrase makes us all joint owners of this government. Mm -hmm. And the Electoral College seems to violate that principle because it removes from us the most important decision we can make, who will govern us. And so um, let me give your readers uh, this quotation that I borrow from uh, Senator and former vice presidential candidate, fellow Tennessean, Estes Kefauver. He put it this way, every four years, the Electoral College is a loaded pistol aimed at our system of government. Its continued existence is a game of Russian roulette. Once its antiquated procedures trigger a loaded cylinder, it may be too late for the needed corrections. Wow, that's dramatic. Indeed. I think we've kind of done an action plan about the things that um, people can get involved in or be aware of or investigate. And you're gonna, everyone's gonna hear more and more about the Electoral College before, during, and after the election, but you had suggested that I um, mentioned the work of the Brennan Center uh, for, uh, this is, um, it's the Brennan Center for Justice. It's at the NYU, New York University School of Law. It's a nonpartisan law and policy institute that works to reform, revitalize, and when necessary, defend our country's system of democracy and justice. And they have, several issues that they're involved in and, and I kind of doodled around it in preparation for talking with you today and it's amazing. It's really uh, well done and articles that aren't too long <laughs> and aren't too technical, although it seems to run the gamut. Absolutely. I highly recommend the work of the Brennan Center and your, your listeners can go to the website there and look around for more information. As you mentioned, uh, gerrymandering. Uh, they deal with all sorts of, of issues related to uh, voting justice, right. criminal justice, uh, civil liberties, and civil rights. And so they have uh, great resources that your readers can uh, inform themselves more about the Electoral College or gerrymandering or uh, voting rights. Uh, and then they have some other, uh, they can connect to other groups and ways for uh, your listeners to take direct political action, for example, of bringing some of these issues that they care about up to uh, the General Assembly here in Tennessee. Right, right. In fact, I'm going to, to borrow the, uh, my conclusion today from the Brennan Center, and that is that uh, Americans have never fully embraced the Electoral College, and why should they? The system treats votes unequally, giving them more or less weight based on where voters live. It encourages campaigns to focus their efforts on a handful of swing states and encourages presidential candidates to skew public policy to benefit them. And it has five times. The Electoral College can enable the candidate who loses the popular vote to win the presidency. That's what's happened five times. In these consequential ways, the Electoral College system undermines our core democratic values. And that is really a summary of what we've talked about today. We've you've given us examples in all those areas. And um, 
So I thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation, uh, Sandy, and I thank your uh, listeners for their attention. All right. This has been What About Us, a podcast that discusses how policies affect uh, rural Tennesseans. Uh, We are part of the Tennessee Holler um, podcast network. Go to tn.holler, tnholler.com and see some of the other uh, great podcasts. I, I didn't, I didn't listen to anybody else's this week. I'm sorry, y'all, but I will, I'll do double duty next week. We actually, there is a, a, a podcast on politics, porch politics. That's, um, that has just started up. So that would be a great source for more information um, and discussion of Tennessee policies uh, and voting. So thanks again, Andrea. Have a good school year. Good luck. Be well. (laughs) Bye-bye.